Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech Talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, Homo sapiens sapiens, and of course, all other unspecified intelligent life forms. Congratulations once again for your excellent choice of podcast. Welcome to Tech Talk. Here we have the best kind of tech talk because our tech talk is organically infused with the voice of Matthew Dickerson. And here supplying that voice today is Matthew Dickerson himself. How's that for putting out the welcome, Matt? That is a very welcome, welcome, Matt. Welcoming, welcome, Matt. Now, it's funny you should mention Homo sapiens sapiens there. I remember when we were back at primary school and one of our subjects, one of our assignments we had to go and do the research for and hand in a massive three or four page assignment on was the reproductive system of any animal. So me being a bit of a smart aleck said to the teacher, is that any animal? And yes, of course, young uh, Matthew, any you animal. Go. So I said, well, I'm going to choose a homo sapien sapien. And, and the teacher either didn't know or just didn't care enough about what I was saying. I said, sure ah. thing, go for it. <laughs> so I presented my assignment on the reproductive system of the homo sapien sapien. <laughs> of course, next thing I'm sitting in front of the principal going, why are you bringing in pictures of human genitalia? <laughs> well, that was the assignment. <laughs> So you've got to be careful. What dirty you, boy. Right, yeah, you've got to be careful what you do. Now, speaking of being careful, I'm excited and frustrated today, all at the same time. Uh-huh. One of our stories, one of our nine stories I'm very excited about. Now, I get excited about all of our nine stories each week because they are exciting. For sure. But this one, I'm actually getting some messages about because over the years, I've said to people, here's 50 cents, give me a phone call when this certain thing happens to you. And they laugh at me and say, no, no, it'll never happen to me. And it started happening. And we'll give you some more data when Mm. we get to that story. But before we get to that story, I've had a few more messages sent to me this week about an article that some people read in the paper. It's one of those old frustrating things that people like to roll out the common myths. Now, this is a formal, former federal government minister who wrote this article about EVs. And of course, the things that we've heard so many times. Oh, I know where this is going. Yeah, the right. old common myths that have been proven to be wrong over and over. For anyone yeah. that listens to Tech Talk, they're, they're all over these things about batteries exploding and cars burning, and it's such a risk to drive an electric car because it's going to burst into flames, or mm. all the terrible damage you're doing to the planet with mining. Of course, you don't apparently mine to build a normal car. Yeah. So all these common things that we've heard over the years about the reasons you wouldn't buy an electric vehicle. And of course, this person's written an article today, this week, about all these reasons you wouldn't buy an electric vehicle, all these myths from years ago that have been proven wrong over Yeah, so there's nothing new in these arguments, I gather. Nothing new. And in fact, more than nothing new, there's lots of things that are old and and they've already been proven. Yeah. Absolutely right. And what worries me about that is your background from a science perspective, you really are holding on to information and getting facts presented to you, information presented to you, but you're happy to change it based on more information presented to you. Yeah, that's right. When when the information changes, when the when the facts change in light of new evidence, yeah. Yeah, and that's where some people just don't seem to understand that whole process. They get locked onto a view, they get mm. locked onto a position, and it doesn't matter what other information you present to them, doesn't matter how many other bits of data you present to them and say, here are all the things that kind of show that what you're saying is absolutely, completely and terribly wrong, but they keep saying it over and over and over. And then they go and write articles in Mm. national newspapers, which then try and influence people's thinking. So it's a bit frustrating from that perspective. Well, I guess all it's going to be doing is reinforcing the uh, misconceptions that people who already have those opinions 
um, yeah, they're just reinforcing it for them. So it does, but you do also worry about people that are on the fence that aren't really sure. Yeah, and they're thinking about one bit of information. They're thinking about going a certain direction, and then they read this article from a respected person. They say, "Oh, oh, lucky we didn't go down that path because now that I've read this information." So the whole idea of an opinion column is to have an opinion and probably to influence people. Mm. And in this case. I'm, I'm always happy to hear different opinions, always happy to hear debate, love having good debate, sitting around at a dinner table with friends, having a debate about the whatever yeah. is very much, it sounds a bit boring, it's, 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 that's my fun space, <laughs> but I don't like it when it's based on misinformation, misinformation. lies. It's so, you said that it's frustrating, yeah? Mm. Um, and I guess, look, you know, exploding batteries, um, we've got now got enough EVs in Australia and we've had them in uh, Australia for a while now. We'd expect to see a couple more news stories uh, appearing, and not just one out of the blue, but uh, you'd see regular ones. Uh, I haven't seen any yet. Uh, no, and keep in mind that with a petrol engine car or diesel engine car, you've got a big explosive there called the petrol tank, yeah. which can go up in flames. And, and there have been car fires with petrol right. tanks, yeah. And yeah. we've seen that before where you actually compare the number of fires com- with battery, and, and this is on a per capita, but that's not the right term, per car basis, per unit, yeah. per unit basis, the number of fires in an EV compared to the number of fires in petrol cars, it's more on a percentage basis with petrol cars than it is with EVs. But, of course, sometimes they do make the news with an EV because mm. it is news with, oh, no, look at this, this terrible it's EV. It's something different. Yeah. It is something different, yeah. But anyway, yeah. we'll keep soldiering on. People that listen to Tech Talk have got the information, have got the current up-to-date facts as we know them today, which might change next week. But as we know them today, these are accurate. Yeah, and that's the way to go, folks. All right, our first story involves a little bit of movie magic. You're probably aware that before movie makers release their masterpiece to the world, that the very late stages of production require a a test audience or two. There, a small production team will watch the people who are watching the movie to gauge their reactions so that fine adjustments can be made before the big release. But of course, we live in the future now, and judging people's reactions by looking is not enough anymore. We need hard biometric data, and to get that... We need to hardwire people into their cinematic experience directly. So, in Bristol in the UK, a whole cinema has been purpose-built with this in mind. Matt, would a large popcorn and cola be enough to distract me from the two dozen electrodes stuck to my head and torso? <laughs> I'm not sure how many electrodes they stick to you, but presumably a few. And it is fascinating, and isn't it? wired up. <laughs> That's right. The old focus group, as you said, watching people's reactions, even filling in questionnaires afterwards. What did you think of this part of the movie and how did you react and how did you feel about this? Well, I don't know. That was half an hour ago now. I don't know how mm. I felt about now. They'll even test different endings, different scenarios in mm. movies. So they'll bring in a focus group and they'll run one process and then they'll bring in another focus group and run a different ending or have some different things happen to characters. Some character might die, some character may not die and all of that. But it is a bit archaic to then say, now fill in these 10 questions about that movie and then base the whole release of this movie on that. So this is actually quite fascinating. You can monitor heart rate, eye movement, brain activity You've got the electrical properties of atten- at the, the attendee's skin to assess emotional and sympathetic reactions. <laughs> so you've got a whole range of things being judged and being monitored here to really get that instant process. Now, you can imagine afterwards, so 36 viewers at a time, you can imagine afterwards you'd have this wonderful process where 
the director would be watching the movie and then have some sort of graph, almost like a worm, when you see a worm on, on a debate, a political debate, you just have this graph about different reactions that were occurring mm. and then working out what should happen. And then, of course, I imagine that if you're doing a, a scenario where it was a different ending, for example, you might have that graph overlaid against the other one to see which got the best emotional reaction or what made people happy, whole range of things there. Blurring the lines between art and science. Oh, absolutely right. And surely one of the skills of a Steven Spielberg, for example, would be, I know audiences. Yeah, you know this your audience. It's going to work. Yeah. Compared to, well, I looked at the data, actually, Mr. Spielberg, and no, this doesn't work, but this is over here. This yeah. one does work. And gee, it is a fine line, isn't it, between that art and that science. But what a great way to almost ensure you're going to have a hit movie because you probably want to refine it when it hasn't been released rather than release it to the world and then go, oh, actually, it wasn't that yeah. good, was it? <laughs> we thought this would be a no, great the response. The fear of the flop. Well, that's, that's exactly it, and that's exactly what we're going down. Biometric data is quite fascinating. This is a, a way we're seeing biometric data be used in effectively marketing, but biometric data has been used in marketing, it's used in healthcare. So I mm. think this is a really big health area that's being developed more and more. And because we've got sensors that are smaller and can judge reactions on our skin and eyes and heart rate much better, we're getting more and more biometric data from I people. I just find it um, really, really interesting that we are able to define what enjoyment is or what fear is and uh, what happiness is, all these different emotions. We're able to define them at a um, biometric level. Well, this is the interesting thing. I did think about this. So if I have sweaty skin, does that mean I'm nervous? Does that mean I'm excited? Does that mean I'm happy? So breaking down the raw data mm. to then say what that means for that human and maybe different humans react differently. So there's all of that to build into this as well. So it's a pretty complicated area. The name for this is an instrumented auditorium. So if someone says... Hey, James, you want to come to my instrumented auditorium? Just beware that you might be hooked up to a few yeah. different devices. <laughs> You're going to get stuff stuck on you. It, it does sound fascinating. So this is the first in the world, but I imagine we'll see more and more of these, assuming it all I'm goes... I'm surprised that Bristol was the place that they put it, and it wasn't somewhere like LA. Well, you would have thought that Hollywood would have been the obvious place. They actually got £400,000 from the Wolfson Foundation, who obviously is trying to focus on innovative developments, so mm. maybe that's why it ended up in Bristol rather than Hollywood. And it, it makes sense. It doesn't have to be in the place where they're making the movies directly. Uh, they just need an audience to watch the movie. Yeah, and then you get to the difference between a UK audience and maybe an American oh, audience. Yeah. So maybe and that flavors is... Flavours and tastes there, yeah, 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 for sure. Maybe that, that's quite a different part of it. I understand... And from a very reliable source, mind you, that having a mammogram done is, well, reasonably unpleasant as far as experiences go. The whole boob squashing enterprise is a major drawback. The hardware was clearly designed by male engineers with the only goal in mind uh, being that of detecting the cancer and little, if any, thought uh, as towards the means of the uh, towards the end, I should say. Ladies, there has to be a better way and perhaps the good people at MIT in Boston have found it. And it may be as inconvenient as a simple bra pad. Matt, the future is looking up for breast cancer detection. We did talk last week actually about AI being used to read some of the scans, but it still relies on you getting in and having the scan. Mm. And having the scans regular obviously is incredibly important. We talked a little bit about last week that if you can get breast cancer early, or in fact any cancers early, you've got a much better survival rate. So with breast cancer in particular, 
you've got a 99% five-year survival rate if you detect the breast cancer early. Mm. If it gets to any other part in your body, you drop to 30% survival rate over five years. So getting an early detection is obviously absolutely crucial in that particular scenario. Having said that, and with all the information we have, all the data that we have, all the knowledge we have, there are still 42,000 women in the US alone who die each year of breast cancer. And one thing that many people don't know, men get it as well. 500 men a year die from breast cancer in the US. So it's still a major problem. Obviously, this story doesn't necessarily relate to men because not many men that I know wear a bra, but obviously many females do. And one of the things, but if is, it's as simple as a pad, maybe you know it can be something can be rigged up just to. Do, well, you're, you're looking at a regular detection thing, so you are, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so it requires, but you still might be conscious do it. of it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You you might. Today's my bra wearing day. <laughs> it might be the, the scenario. But one of the things is obviously they recommend that women over forty have a mammogram every year, and most women I know over 40, that's part of their process and their health checks and they do that. But as we learned last week, not enough radiographers in the UK. So trying to get in for your annual checkup is tough. But the other part is that 20 to sometimes up to 30% of breast cancers develop within that year. Mm. So even though you're very good and I go along on my birthday each year and have my breast cancer check, in between that, you might come back for your next check and they say, oh, We've got a reasonable size lump there. Well, how can that be? I only had it checked a year ago, but it mm. can develop depending how aggressive yeah. it is. Well, it's got to develop sometime. It does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then how far it's gone is obviously the big yeah. issue there. So the whole idea of this is that you can, at home, check yourself. And when I say yourself, you'll still want to plug it into a device, but that's getting better as well. I'll get to that in a moment. So at the moment, it's got a flexible patch. You fit it inside your bra, and it takes an ultrasound image. Now, the taking of that is actually quite good in terms of compared to a normal mammogram, quite good. The viewing of that is a tricky part. So you actually take that data and plug it into a machine that would be at the doctor's studio, doctor's um, practice, for example. So mm. not something that you have at home. That's the expensive part is the thing that looks at it. So you'd still have to take your data in. So that's a bit of a hassle still. Maybe it'll get to the stage where you can upload that online, but they are also working on some sort of phone-sized, mobile phone-sized imaging system, so you'll be able to plug it into that and then look at it there. But I'm not an expert. How do I know mm. what that looks like? So then, and they haven't gone as far as that as this part yet, but choosing some way of getting AI that we talked about last week to read that. So I imagine that you'll get to the stage where you'll plug it in, you'll upload the images somewhere, and there'll be some AI tool in the cloud that'll look at that and say, tick, all clear, or no, now go and have a proper mammogram because we've detected something in there. At this stage, the detection ability is the best they've been able to do is they've been able to detect a cyst 0.3 centimetres in size, 8 centimetres deep. So that's not too bad. Yeah. So 3 millimetres in size and, uh, sorry, 8 centimetres deep. 8 centimetres deep, deep. yeah. Yeah, So that's not too bad. And again, not quite as good as a mammogram, but... If you've got something growing over that year in between your normal tests, then this is some way to Much pick it up. Much more likely to catch it if you've got one of these bra pads. Yeah, and I obviously would say that it would probably be used more by people who have got some sort of family history of cancer. Mm. That would be obvious, but anyone that's worried about it and you're living a healthy life and you're exercising and you're eating well, the, the thing that sneaks up on people so often, and how often do we hear about someone that, gee, they were so healthy and cancer got them, mm. you just can't predict cancer and no. there's not really an indicator apart from maybe family history, but there's not an indicator saying 
well, they obviously were going to get cancer because they used to go for a 5K run every day. I mean, mm. it just doesn't seem to, to be linked to that. So this is a way of just another way of checking and keeping us healthier. And continuing in the spirit of early detection, we segue to a story about early bushfire detection. As we hurtle headlong into another El Nino, our national bushfire paranoia soaks in once again, well and truly into the collective psyche. No one wants to be caught off guard, and information is everything. In the Green Triangle region of Western Victoria and South Australia, an AI camera network has been installed with the sole purpose of alerting authorities to spot fires before the smoke gets thick in the air. Matt, there's a lot of forest to watch here. There is a lot of forest. And I remember one of the very first stories we did when we started Tech Talk was about a satellite imaging system that would try and pick up a small fire before it became a bushfire. Yeah. When it becomes a bushfire, often that's too late because by its very definition, it's now a bushfire, it's raging and you're doing the best you can to save maybe some houses and some people, but you're really just waiting for the wind to turn or the fuel to finish burning out. If you can detect it before it gets to that bushfire stage, then happy days. The problem with satellite imagery, most of the time we're talking about geostationary satellites, 36,000 kilometres above the Earth. That makes it hard to get really good high-definition photos. What this particular system does is it uses ground-based cameras, high-definition ground-based cameras, in addition to satellite feeds, in addition to some AI, so that you can get, hopefully, some sort of early bushfire detection, and again, I keep saying bushfire, but early spot fire detection might be more mm. accurate. So then you can get people on the ground, into the system, get it put out before it starts to take hold, and the amount you would save in people, in buildings, in actual forests, yeah. would be quite incredible. And we've seen examples, unfortunately, in Australia over recent years where some incredible damage has been done by bushfires. And Let's face it, with the changing climate we have, we're going to get more extremes, and so we're expecting to have more bushfires as time goes forward. So this is a really clever system. And again, I think the big difference between this, and we go back to 140-odd episodes ago, and we did that very first one, is the addition of those ground-based cameras so that you can pick up something much earlier. And obviously what they're doing with these cameras is looking for a heat signature. So you're not looking just for something that looks like some flames. You're looking for a specific heat signature, which is what those satellite systems are doing, but it just doesn't have the same resolution in the satellite system as it does at the ground level. Sorry. Uh, Sorry, I was just going to say that with AI technology on the ground too, it can be reasonably cheap as well, a lot more less expensive than sending um, satellites up into into space. That's right. If you've got cameras on the ground in areas that are likely or possible for bushfires. Lots and lots of cameras. And then add some AI in there so you don't have to have people sitting there monitoring it the whole time. So they'd have an algorithm set up Mm. that says, look for these heat signatures, use the satellite images to get an overall picture because, again, that can give you more than one area that might be breaking out, if you like, and then the high definition of the ground-based cameras to make sure that it is really a fire, then send the troops in as quick as you possibly can and get that fire put out. So it's just... I just love human ingenuity and I love the way we just keep solving problems. Bushfires have been around forever. I'm sure ever since lightning strikes around before man discovered fire, there were probably bushfires around because it wasn't always someone flicking a cigarette out the window. Mm. Lightning strikes obviously cause problems as well. And again, to get to the point now where we're trying to to detect these before they've become bushfires is quite incredible. (laughs) 
When you live in a society that is more or less like a Wild West movie, and right and wrong seems to be only defined by firepower and good intention, the line that runs between good and evil is frequently blurry. From an outsider's point of view, the US seems to be running a little bit like a B-grade spaghetti western these days. Any effort to rein in the incredibly loose but ultimately sacrosanct gun laws is slapped down to the dirt like some common dandy at the OK Corral. The gun lobby and the politicians they own will throw millions of dollars at non-solutions. So, Matt, tell me all about biometric pistol locks now. Now, we have had a bit of a discussion about this topic before when there was a company that conceptually was going to have some sort of biometric unlocking of a gun. It's progressed now, and it's gotten to the point now where this particular smart gun will be available by the end of the year in the U.S., and obviously, there's a lot of debate. There's been a lot of debate for a long time. I think probably back around the 1990s, there been some discussion, not necessarily around biometric, but some way of making sure a gun wasn't used accidentally by someone, mm. having some sort of system. Maybe there were guns that came out in the 1990s with a pin that you had to put in. So mm. hold on there, Mr. Robber. I just have to, <laughs> oh, what's my pin? What is it? Damn it, I haven't used it for a while. I'll just punch this in. No, it wasn't that one. Give me another go and just wait there for me, will you? And I'll be there in a minute. Obviously, what you're trying to do is stop the incidents where either a child picks up a gun in the household and accidentally does something, shoots a brother, shoots themselves, whatever, or where someone steals the gun and then uses it in a robbery and they say, well, that was registered to you, Mr. Eddie, therefore Mm. we're going to arrest you for that crime. If you've got something where it's got some way of only being used by the authorised user, that sounds pretty good, but it needs to be reliable so that it can be used if you need to use it and also make sure that only authorised users. And I know with smartphones, for example, I know my son's face will unlock my wife's phone. Oh, really? Enough similarity in the bone structure in their face (laughs) that it will actually work that way. So you don't want the situation where a son can unlock a phone from a parent because obviously that's one of the reasons you want the biometric gun in the first place. BioFire believe theirs is reliable and theirs is only going to be used by authorised users. It uses a combination of either fingerprint or facial scan. So you pick up the gun to use it, it'll do a facial scan back or a fingerprint scan on the part, I'm not sure if it's actually on the trigger or just next to the trigger, but basically authorised by you there. And they believe it's both quick enough to work and reliable enough that it can't be used by someone else. Yeah, okay. Expensive, so a normal gun, I don't know what a gun is worth, but in the US apparently guns along this line, 9mm pistol for example, 400 to maybe $800 you'd pay for them normally. This particular one will be priced at $1,500. So yeah. double the higher end of these type of guns. So yeah. whether that's enough for you to feel like it's important, let me see what's the life of my child worth in an accidental shooting versus the gun. Yeah, sure, $1,500 sounds reasonable to me, mm. but how much people take it on. And, and one of the things that's always the case is, do we know if the bad guys are going to actually have it? Yeah, so... <laughs> So a, a bad guy can still get his biometrics done and that's fine. Well, yeah. a bad guy probably would buy a non-biometric gun because that's the other part that's not compulsory. And yeah. that's one of the things where some states that have talked about making 
this sort of gun compulsory, you can imagine the gun lobby is going through the roof and then they've said, well, maybe we'll just make it optional. So if it's optional, if you're a good, honest citizen that will probably never use your gun, mm. you get a biometric gun. If you're a bad guy who intends to go and rob a bank, you don't go and get a biometric gun. You go and get one that's not biometric. And then we get into the debate about um, when does a good guy become a bad guy and <laughs> um, yeah, and all mental health, those issues and all that sort all of stuff. All those things there. So oh anyway, dear. We, anyway. we think in Australia that the solution is obvious, but obviously not quite as obvious that's in America. That's right. They're having a go. Yeah, that's right. So at least they're trying other ways with technology. the mumblers and the grumblers drone on about how now EVs are so bad and I hold my tongue. They have so many reasons as to why we should steer away from EVs and for the better part the naysayers have been in good company here in the land of Oz up until now. It seems as though it may not be the case for much longer. Australia has been dragging the chain on global EV sales but recent stats have seen a significant shift Matt. Mm -mm. At last. I, I am excited. So let me go back a little bit and give you some of the older data. Way back in 2013, I bought my first EV, which was an EV, a Holden Volt. Ten years ago. It yeah. was an EV with a range extender. So it had a petrol engine, but it ran on the battery for about 70 kilometres of range. And if you went past that, the petrol engine would start up so you could keep driving. So it was a way to solve range anxiety with the batteries not as good as they are today. Mm. And interestingly enough, if you drove it for... I think it was three months and the petrol engine had it started, it would give you a warning because at one stage I got a warning come off my dash and said, by the way, the petrol engine hasn't started for three months. We need to make sure the lubricants are working correctly. Press this button and the petrol engine will start and run for a couple of minutes. And so okay. I did that. So that it meant obviously for three months I hadn't driven more than 70 kilometres between charges. So fantastic. I drove it as an EV. In that year, 0.02% of of all new car sales in this country were EVs. Mm. And that's when I talk about EVs in this report, I'm talking about EVs as in a straight battery electric vehicle. Rather than hybrids. Not hybrids, except I in this data is included plug-in hybrids like that Holden Volt, which plugged okay. in right. and had the range extender. And so ones that still plug in are included in the EV sales. But the ones that plug in in terms of the overall sales, very small percentage of those. It's, most people now are just going battery electric. So that was 2013. In 2014, up to 0.12%. Not exactly screaming ahead. 2015, up to 0.15%. 2016, it dropped back nah. to 0.12%. So year, 2016. <laughs> that's right. So people are going, yeah, it was a bit of a fad. Put it up there with yo-yos, maybe Rubik's Cubes, and it was a bit of a passing <laughs> fad, and now it's all over. Then we jump forward a little bit. They didn't progress much through those years. In 2020, it was all the way up to 0.78%. 2021, doubled to 1.95%. We're on a bit of a march here now. Well, at least we're into numbers that are bigger than, <laughs> like, one. <laughs> That's right. 2022, we almost doubled again to 3.81%. And now, what I'm excited about is the first six months of this year, 8 0.4%. There we go. Now that's how it happened. So that's another doubling or more than doubling. And my wild prediction, which I'm pretty safe in saying, I think by the end of this year, we'll be at double digits. Given the fact that the first six months are at 8.4%, I guarantee by the end of the year, we'll be over 10%. Mm. So that's pretty exciting. So that's been a doubling exponential growth for the last few years. Obviously, you can't keep doubling forever. You're going to hit 100% at some point. 
but at least it's going on the march. Now, we still are a little ways behind some parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. We've got to be careful and get this into perspective. That's right. Norway, over 90%. This is last 90%. year. 90%? Yep. Sweden, Netherlands, Germany, China. This is all based on 2022 figures, all over 30%. Mm. So they're going ahead quite well. In the states across the, the this nation, the ACT, and we've talked about the ACT before, they've had some quite progressive policies. 21.8% of all new car sales for the first six months of this year were EVs. There you go. Tasmania and New South Wales, uh, both at 9%. Tasmania just slightly ahead of New South Wales, but basically 9%. And I think that's interesting because New South Wales was dragging the chain, but now we've got a couple of government policies, not big things, but just enough that have made people think about it. So it's amazing how a small policy can have a big impact. And the NT sits last at 2.4%. So they've got a little way to go to catch up. But the thing that I like the most about all this latest data that's come in is that there were 46,624 EVs sold in the first six months. The top four models, no surprise with the top model, it's the same as the top model around the world, the Tesla Model Y, 30.0% of market share they had. The Tesla Model 3, next 24.8%. BYD Atto 3, 13.3%. And the Chinese-owned MG brand, so that was obviously the old British MG, but they bought the brand because they wanted to have some sort of brand that was already established, but it's a Chinese company. Chinese-owned MG had their ZS EV, 3.8%. Obviously, you're down to small numbers now. But what I noticed in there was I was looking out for the big car manufacturers, the Volkswagen, the Toyota, the Ford, the Honda, the Mazda. In those top four, they're not there. So yeah, right. you start thinking, wow, these are companies that didn't exist. Maybe, well, Tesla's a bit older than a decade old, but not much older. So maybe 15 years ago, these companies did There's not a exist. a real shift happening. It is a real shift. And the traditional manufacturers, that have, that they know how to make cars. They know how to make cars on volume. They know how to pump out petrol cars and distribute them around the world. Mm. But they've been caught short. They've been caught just saying, we'll get there eventually. We'll keep producing these cars. We're selling them. And in the blink of an eye, suddenly the top four EV sales in Australia are brands that didn't exist 15 years ago, still only making up 8.4% of the market, but on a march forward. So I I wouldn't like to be in the boardroom of some of those manufacturers saying, it's all right, we'll catch up soon, we'll wait till this bit of a fad (laughs) goes away and everything will be okay, because I think the fad's going away. So there's lots of people that I've said, as I said at the beginning of the show, that I've given 50 cents to over the years when I've talked to them about EVs, I'll never have one of those, they're rubbish and all sorts of terrible things and all those myths that we've heard about, and that's my standard response. Here's 50 cents, give me a call, and I've typically said, within the decade, give me a call when you're driving one. And I've actually been getting calls from people saying, oh, I don't want to say it, but you're right, I just bought my first EV. So people are buying them. People that said never, never's a big word, people that have said never will I buy one are starting to buy them. Well, I also was in a conversation just recently with someone who is has bought themselves an EV, but they chose um, uh, one from a traditional car manufacturer rather than buying a Tesla. And the reason was because they wanted to buy one from someone who had been making cars yeah. um, all the way through. And I thought, well, yeah, one of the things that I, I found appealing about Tesla was the fact that they redesigned the car. They just went back to scratch. They started from scratch, didn't they? That's exactly right. And I, I, I've talked to some people the same. They like the incumbency, if you like, of someone mm. that has already been doing it. They know how to do it. Some people get a bit nervous about the whole new world without regular servicing. 
Some people have said to me, I bought a traditional brand EV mm. because they had a service schedule at 10,000 Ks, at 20,000 Ks, whatever it might be. A lot of EV manufacturers say, don't worry about it. There's nothing to service. Bring it in when something breaks in it. Yeah. Don't worry about wasting your money on regular services. Now, for a lot of car dealers, that's their bread and butter is doing that service. That's a lot of their good yeah. recurring revenue. Yeah. So they've got to come up with a whole new business model. The other one that I find fascinating, and we've probably mentioned this before, Take a big brand like Toyota. In Australia, they've probably got 200, maybe 250 dealers across the nation. On the floor in new cars and used cars, they would have, I think some would probably have over 10 million, five to $10 million worth of cars. Let's say it was 10 million because the math is a bit easier for me. <laughs> then you take 200 car dealers across the nation with $10 million each of cars on the lot, you got $2 billion worth of Toyotas sitting across the nation. Someone like Tesla, you go online and order a Tesla, they've got maybe a depot in each state, it wouldn't even be in each state, they might have a, a few depots around the nation, it comes into the depot and goes straight out to the actual mm. end user, they would store very little in terms of cars mm. in anywhere. So $2 billion, that's a lot of money that's tied up that's in stock distributed around the nation. Yeah. yeah. So the whole business model is different for someone like Tesla. Mm. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you want to get rich quick, folks, one way might be to find a better way of storing electricity. It might even keep the anti-EV grumblers quiet. With the uh, energy sector undergoing a complete overhaul on a global scale, fears of an unreliable supply need to be met with innovative solutions. And one solution may be in multipurposing the concrete foundations of new homes by adding some carbon, of all things. If this works, Matt... It may be a super-duper carbon sink as well. A smart person has said to me many times, material science. Material science. That's the future. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the future with this, isn't it? It does seem like it's so simple. Throw a bit of charcoal powder in and everything's okay. So the combination of cement and carbon forms a block with wire-like structures filled with carbon that you can then use as a supercapacitor. It sounds fascinating. Yeah. Now, the only minor problem I have with it, and keep in mind this is a very early version of this, the only minor problem I have is that you build your house with the slab, for example, out of concrete, that's a battery. Fantastic. I don't have to worry about putting a battery in the garage or having mm. a battery mounted somewhere. And I use that, but a battery has a lifetime. And they're estimating at this stage that this capacitor would have a lifetime of maybe 27 years. So in 27 years' time, you say, damn, my battery's gone. I have to pull down my house, knock out the slab, put a new <laughs> slab in and put my house back up again. But Well, perhaps in 27 years, there's another alternative as well. There could be, but I suspect that we won't start building houses out of this until that 27 years becomes more like maybe 100 years. Mm. You might expect if you built a house today that was a, a sort of normal structure at the moment that we might have a slab base and brick walls, maybe cement rent on the outside – in a hundred years' time, you might be looking to do something with that, might be looking mm. to knock that down and start again. So if they get to the point where it's a hundred years, more than the, the number of cycles I've got now, then it sounds like it makes sense. But it also can be used, it doesn't have to be in the slab, it can be in the walls of a building, it could be in the walls of a building that only has a lifetime of, say, 30 years, mm. and you've suddenly got this battery built into it. Then you start to think about, we've talked about shingles before, roof shingles that are basically solar panels. So you start to think about a house that's built with 
the base itself with the slab out of something that could store electricity, maybe the walls out of something that could store electricity, then a rooftop that's made entirely of solar panels, mm. and you've got this incredibly energy-aware house that you're generating your own electricity and storing your own electricity, what an easy way to go off the grid. I'm really keen to see, we've talked about before, some 3D printing of different structures, different houses, that type of thing, whether or not they could build into a 3D printing process this sort of supercapacitor. That sounds too complicated, but people are very clever in what they build, so maybe that'll be the next thing. And imagine that, building a house with the actual walls itself 3D printed that are part of the battery, part of your whole electrical system. Yeah, amazing, amazing. But, I mean, where else do we use concrete? Um, Where else do we need foundations that could have that carbon sink in them as well? And we're thinking about roads. Roads, We're thinking about any uh, other sort of paved surfaces at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, And how many people put in a a shed in their yard? Got a bit of space, so they put in a shed. You need a concrete slab for that. Um, You know, there's so many different ways that you could get access to this battery. Well, think about the road thing. That's a, that's a really good one because we've talked before about some roads that have got solar panels as part of the actual surface. So they're charging up. Well, they've got to charge it up and they've got to send that electricity somewhere. Well, imagine if it just sent it straight to the road to store it up and then it could be used somewhere else in the grid. Well, that sounds pretty clever as well. So, And most roads need a bit of maintenance over a you know, 30-year span. Too. Well, yeah, that's probably right too. So having a 30-year lifespan is probably okay, although concrete roads do tend to last longer than mm, bitumen. But yeah. again, this is sitting in the laboratory in the first iteration they've already gotten in 27 years. Mm. Give it some time, you know, give them a break, folks. Give them another year or so to develop <laughs> things. That 27 could easily go up, in my opinion, to get something much longer. And then a road itself, you might say, well, that concrete road's got a 50-year lifetime. And luckily, we've now got a structure that can handle a 50-year recharging process. So mm. it does sound quite fascinating. Exciting times ahead. When scams were as easy to spot as a poorly edited letter from a Nigerian prince looking for a bank account to dump his millions of dollars into, scam warnings have become an unfortunate but necessary element of our podcast as the scammers have created veils for themselves that appear more and more like legitimate enterprises these days. One of our previous tips for spotting scams online was to check the domain. If it doesn't look right, then just back away from it. Well, the scammers have been listening into us, folks, and lookalike domains are now becoming quite prolific. Matt, the internet has become like the streets of a Dickensian novel. Why can't they just leave us alone? Please, leave us alone. I challenge our listeners to use the word homoglyph in general conversation <laughs> over the next week. Just slide it in there. A homoglyph. A homoglyph, that's right. So that's what we've got. This is the issue now. The latest little scam that people are doing, or not people, the scammers are doing, is using homoglyphs. So, for example, the letter L, a small letter L, and the number 1, and maybe an uppercase I, for example, could all look a bit the same. Mm. And so if you were looking for a domain name and you just want to check it, if you looked at it and it had an L or a 1 or an I in it, it might just go unnoticed, especially yeah. if you had an email that came through on your mobile phone, just, just a, a small font. It looks about quick right. glance and it looks okay. Exactly right. The letter O and the number 0 look pretty similar as well, especially an uppercase O compared to the number zero. You've got to have a pretty hard look at that to pick the difference between those two. So again, you get an email through, you just 
I'm clever enough to know about these scams. I'll check the domain name. And you look at it, yep, that's right. It's legitimate because the domain name's right. And it wouldn't take me somewhere else if I went to the legitimate company's domain name. So well, I'm now at a stage that if I get an email or a text message from somewhere um, and they're saying, oh, look, you need to pay attention to this, I'll then go externally. I'll go and open up their site myself and go looking for how I deal with that. And to do that, you want to make sure you type in the site. Yeah. 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 And actually, my wife got a phone call from the bank the other day, which turned out to be a legitimate phone call, but a phone call from the bank, and they talked to her about a few things, and my wife said, sure, but how do I know you from the bank? And she said, well, uh, mm, uh, good question. And so she had no real yeah, way right. of proving that she was from the bank. But again, this isn't something that normally happens. If you got a phone call from your bank normally, it would be, oh, sure, let's go through and fix it up. And it was just changing an FPOS machine over. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't, mm. say, by the way, give me your PIN and I've got your, mm, your card here to go and put it through an ATM. But it was legitimate thing then because it was okay well if you're legitimate then you'll send someone to our business with that new fpos machine to change it all over yeah. and again even when you do that what's to stop someone turning up with an fpos machine that then directs a fund somewhere else i mean it just where does it stop where does trust stop and, and where 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 can yeah. you stop checking for those things and, and again we're this surrounded is, by artful dodgers <laughs> street exactly urchins right. <laughs> picking our pockets on a daily basis picking our pockets electronically and virtually so it is scary one of the things that I think some companies are starting to do now is think about the variations of the domain that could be tricking people with homoglyphs and then registering those domains as well. But mm. what a pain. If you've yeah. got a couple of L's in your domain name, oh, no, we're going to have to go oh, and register yeah. a variety of, uh, of oh, different domain you names. You can survive picking one. Yeah. You've got to pick three. That's right. <laughs> and I suppose it's one of the things where two-factor authentication is important as well. Yeah. Yep. But again, if you receive an email, click on this just to go through and update your account. Yep, that all looks right. Click on that. And again, when they do it, they replicate the website yep. so well, yep. which is so much easier to do now with modern desktop publishing packages. So they click on something, the domain looks right, the website looks right, yep, that's okay, here's my details, and thanks very much, there's a scam, you've just typed it in. So as we always say, be aware, be alert, just trust no one, which sounds like pretty sad advice, sad but unfortunately, advice. that's the case we're in now. week we talked about Google Maps not only showing you the quickest route, but also the greenest route option. Well, from the University of British Columbia comes an algorithm for the chronically cautious. It's the safest route option. Matt, I always assume that I'll get to my destination okay, but I guess there is a market for this. <laughs> there is a market for this, apparently. 23% of the fastest routes the researchers found in Athens, they use an example. Involve perilous roads that... <laughs> <laughs> well, they probably do as well. But only 23% of the fastest routes were also the safest routes. And when you think yeah, about okay. it, when you've got congestion in a major city, then there are going to be some accident-prone areas. In the same way as when you look at maps and you see different colours on a map for congestion. So yeah. trying to get from A to B, I look at the map and go, oh, I'll try and avoid that spot there because it's got some congestion. And so the greenest route we talked about, great idea. But forget about the congestion. Obviously, there is data, in particular in a large city where there are lots of accidents, data around where the accidents are. Mm. So avoid that spot because that's an accident-prone spot. Go around this way over here. There are fewer accidents. Now, there's probably fewer accidents because there's fewer cars going Yeah, I was just going to say, is it a per unit or you know, per, per piece of traffic that drives past that point or is it just sheer volume? Of, I think of they're just working on sheer volume at this stage. So yeah. it might be slightly biased in that 
there are more cars there, so mm. there's more accidents. But over here, there's fewer cars. But once everyone starts going over that way, there'll be more accidents over there mm. because there's more cars going that way. But for the moment, if you're really worried about safety, and this might be a great thing, for example, when your children just get on their pee plates and you say, mm. it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get to uni or to work, here, go this way over here because, yes, it'll take you five minutes extra, but you're probably a better chance of getting there without having an accident and you're an inexperienced driver. Mm. But you start to think about data. And this is what I love. When you start to get all this data, you think, wow, how can we use this data now? So metadata is incredible and what you can do with all this metadata that comes in. When you start to think about things like this, the safest route, okay, we've got accident data. How do we overlay that against other data we have? And the mind starts to just explode with all the different ways that you might start to use data. I saw one the other day, spatial telematics. Never heard of it. There was a program that a company was working on to try and work out some pinch points, and this is with large freight, and those pinch points, they were working on using spatial telematics. They didn't want to use metadata because that was everyone's mobile phone, and they had no way of breaking down just truck drivers' mobile phones, but trucks have got now GPS data that's being fed back to the transport authorities. And so then by looking at that spatial telematics and seeing where the average speed is slower in certain areas, they can then do analysis of that to say, here's a pinch point, we need to solve traffic on this area here, or maybe a restricted bridge, or maybe they've got to decouple trucks, whatever, to then start to deliver that. The problem was that in this particular study, only 20% of trucks at this stage have the spatial telematics data, but that'll obviously improve over time Mm. to start to get better data. So you get all this data, what do you do with it all? And that's the, that's the really ingenious part. <laughs> you change the part. world with it. With <laughs> well, you, you, you can do that. you just got to work out which parts of the world to change. Okay, how are you feeling today, folks? Well, if you're subject to a little paranoia and glass half-empty thinking, well, then perhaps this the end of the podcast should be right near here and now for you. Just walk away. Give this last story a miss and go get some sunshine on your face. Please do it now. Still here? Okay. Don't say we didn't warn you. Matt, tell us about the careers that are most likely to be replaced by AI. Well, we've talked a little bit about this before, about jobs that are safe and jobs that are at risk. But this time, this list has been created by AI itself. <laughs> so tell us how it's taking over the world. Asking Google Bard does to it, say... Do you have any evil laughter? A laughter like... A <laughs> I assume so. Absolutely. <laughs> Compulsory. So Google Google's Bard, which is the, if you like, the Google equivalent of ChatGPT, was asked for professions that are perilously poised and other professions that are protected mm. by AI. So here are the ones that are at risk. So again, these are the people that you mentioned there a moment ago that might want to tune in right now. If you're a data entry clerk, if you're a truck driver, if you're a telemarketer or an accountant, these mm. are jobs at risk. If you're well, a, a legal assistant... Telemarketers, that's all right, isn't it? That's okay. That's fine. We don't mind those ones. If you're a legal assistant, if you're a web developer, a translator... I went to a function last night with some Japanese exchange students and they did have some people from Japan that were there as translators, but I just pulled out my app. I use one particular app called Say Hi and I use that as my translator and I'm pretty confident it's getting it at least vaguely right and not interpreted by a human. (laughs) So translators, graphic designers, 
and factory workers. And this is probably more than just AI. We've got robots as well in things like factories. Yeah. So they're the ones that you might be a little bit concerned about. Uh. The ones that are safe, you'll be pleased to know that number one on the list of safe is teacher. Ah, there we go. I made a good decision 30 That's years right. ago. Teachers, and, and you're probably thinking about that 30 years ago. You're going, now AI will come along one day. I better have a profession that's safe. Well, Terminator 2 was fresh out, right? So, <laughs> yes, yeah, Skynet right. was a big thing. and yep. yeah. So, educators in general, I think, is one of them. Healthcare workers, artists. Now, artists are an interesting one. In the jobs at risk was graphic designers, but in the jobs that are safe is artists. So, there's a fine line there, I think. Entrepreneurs, clergy, I think we're pretty safe out with clergy. Mm-hmm. I think there's not too many people out there trying to create well, an AI. We did priest. have a story with um, that AI sermon that was delivered. The AI sermon, that's right. So that's it was delivered by that. I think it was still test. delivered by the priest. Yeah, okay. But there yeah, may be a robot priest at some stage. Lawyers, unfortunately, it'd be nice if we could replace those. <laughs> HR professionals, customer service managers, and creative directors. And I think that's probably true in terms of creativity. It's hard to, to think and imagine about AI being creative. Although it can be well, somewhat creative, yeah, writes artists, novels, artist work, and yeah, writing yeah. novels and yeah, things. Yeah. So oh. anyway, so there's some of the answers. Again, I'm not going to bet my education or my future children's professions on this. I'm not going to say to people I guarantee these, but that's what Bard believes are the jobs at risk and the jobs that are safe. I would have liked to have seen jobs safe as well, podcast presenters, <laughs> but we know that that's no. probably not true. Yeah, that's a, and look, if you're um, doing your HSC now, guys, maybe uh, take that take heed of that list. I think. Can we add material scientists the jobs that are safe? I hope so. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) All righty, folks. That's all we have for you today. We've hit the bottom of the bowl and there's not even so much as a lick left over. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. I'm going to go and keep researching my little hire to make sure that we're safe, James, going forward. Okie doke. Today I'm going to walk out of the studio a little bit worried about the safest route home, a little bit wary of emails from businesses and a little bit glad that I'm not going to cross paths with anyone toting a pistol, whether it's theirs or not. My heart goes out to the telemarketers out there, though. Some of you are lovely people who I'd like to encourage to think about maybe retraining as a teacher. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. I am James Eddy, and it is a pleasure to bring you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson each week. We hope that you get some tasty treats out of it. But, of course, there is enough for everybody, so spread the word and bring some more into the fold. Figuratively speaking, we hope to see you again in another week's time. 